Hello, podcasters. Welcome back to Mr. Stroud's History Class. It's shout-out time. Shout-out time. First time. Shout-out time. What do you mean, first time, shout-out time? You've been shouting out for many a time. Well, there was a first time they were shouted out. Then there was a first time I shouted out for each first-time shout-out. Then there was a first time for a re-shout-out. What in the world could be left for a first-time shout-out? Family shout-out. First time family shout out, but before you say anything, before you start thinking things, these two wonderful individuals are being shouted out not because they are family, but because of other things that deserve to be shouted out. They just happen to be family. And the first one is a magnificent young lady, and she is Lori Dorsett. How long have I known Lori Dorsett? Let me think, 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 think. I've known her for one day. She's married to my nephew, Stephen, and they drove from Houston, Texas to Kilgore, Texas to attend a party. And she impressed me from the get-go. This is a fascinating young lady and extremely intelligent And I know she's intelligent because she laughed at every one of my jokes. She laughed at my Lincoln jokes. She laughed at the jokes about me, myself. And she listened intensely as we talked history. And then Stephen said, Lori loves history. And they stood on Lookout Mountain not long ago. And Stephen said what I thought when I was there many years ago. How in the world did those soldiers get up that mountain? And with Confederates trying to kill them along the way. Lori loves history. She's a scuba diver, as is Stephen. Magnificent photographs on their face page. She attended Lone Star Community College. And she is a magnificent young lady who is now a member of Mr. Stroud's history class, the podcast. Let's have a standing ovation for Lori Dorsett. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Lori, I'm so glad that you are now a member of the family by marrying my nephew, Stephen, and you are a member of Mr. Stroud's history class. The next one, Lauren Holcomb, is my niece, and I am her uncle, but that's not the right thing. She calls me Uncle Dave, and I call her Niece Lauren, but she's actually my grandniece because she is the daughter of my niece, Jennifer, and she's proud to be a second-generation member of Mr. Stroud's history class at Kilgore College. Jennifer took my classes when she attended, and then when Lauren had graduated from Lufkin High School, she attended also. Class of 07 at A&M, political science major, English minor. Interested in history big time. The two most fascinating things in history, according to Lauren, are United States Marine Corps. Her grandfather, Ed, and I were both Marines. And if you listen to the Quatican podcast, you may remember that it was Ed and I who paid five bucks to see the beer-drinking buffalo a story Lauren said that she just loves. 
And when she learned about my podcast, podcaster, she started binging. I think that's what the young people call it. They, she binging those podcasts. And she has moved Lufkin, Texas up to the number one listening city on more than one occasion. And Lauren, you know how proud of you I am. And you are a podcaster number one, as is Lori. Let's give them both one more standing ovation. Unless you're driving, you're driving. You keep both hands on that steering wheel. Okay. All right. You can be seated if you could. If you, okay, be seated. Be seated. Now I'm going to ask you a question. Raise your hand. If you've ever said you were to do something and you meant it, but you didn't do it. Oh, I see hands going up. I've done that more than one time. I'll read a great history book and I say I'm going to write that author and I'm going to tell that author how great that book is. Hadn't done it. One, I'm going to just give you one. Glorious War, a biography of Custer in the Civil War, written by a Marine Corps Vietnam vet, and I've told everybody about that book, and I'm going to write that fellow Marine and hadn't done it. Last podcast, what did I say I was going to do about the author of the Betsy Ross biography, Dr. Miller, going to write her, did it, done, did it, problem. My electric mail delivery person would not deliver that electric mail. And so I got to Mr. Google. Google at University of Massachusetts Amherst. Faculty. History. And there was a phone number. I called. Got the answering machine. Left her a message. Told her how much I enjoyed the Betsy Ross biography. And I gave that a shout out. And if she wanted to hear that book and herself shout it out, she could attend Mr. Stroud's history class, the podcast on Lookout Mountain. I think I also mentioned that she probably could tell that I was not from the Massachusetts area. But I done did that, podcasters. And I'm proud of myself. I'm patting myself on the shoulder. Pat, 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 pat. I did it. I did it. Now, I'm going to tell you some things that have some things to do with some of the things I'm going to tell you later. They hadn't finished. They hadn't finished with the auction of the flags of the American Revolution at Sotheby's. Now they bring out three flags, three American flags that were captured May 29th, 17th. 80 by the British officer who most Americans hated more than any of the others, an officer by the name of Minister Tarlington. And these were three American flags captured at the Waxhaw Massacre. They didn't sell for quite as much. They only sold for Okay, get your pens out. Get your pens out. They only sold for $4.5 million. Now let's go to the William Bond collection. July 4th and 5th, 1994. 
the battle flag of the Army in Northern Virginia, captured by Private Frederick C. Anderson, who also captured the flag bearer in the Battle of Weldon Railroad, August 21, 1864, and he was awarded the Medal of Honor September 6, 1864. Wait a minute. Most Medal of Honors were going to be sent to the individuals many years later. Every now and then I find one that is awarded recently to the event. It's just amazing. A battle flag of the Army of Northern Virginia captured by a soldier awarded the Medal of Honor. It sold for $73,700. $73,700. Now I'm going to give you some initials. Okay, podcaster, we're going to play Historical Jeopardy, and this is Famous Initial Category. Get ready to ring in, and remember, I want your answer to be a question. Okay, here we go. Here we go. You ready? FDR. You know Franklin Delano Roosevelt, right? LBJ. Lyndon Baines Johnson, the only president that did not have an accent. JFK, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. R.F.K., his brother, Robert. Why am I mentioning him? Podcasters, how many people do you know And I want to think of a better adjective than this that is fascinated in all AWE of Medal of Honor recipients. I am. And so was RFK. He hosted a dinner to celebrate recipients of the Medal of Honor when his brother was in the White House and he was Attorney General. Now, I'll be honest with you, podcasters. That is the only other person that I have read of that is in awe of these Medal of Honor, and I don't know why. I may have told you, if I did, I'm going to tell you again, because you probably forgot, I met a Medal of Honor recipient that was here in Kilgore. I met him, and I was in awe of him, and that was Sergeant James Logan. I don't know why. I've always known about the Medal of Honor. I will put it like that. I do not know when I did not know about the Medal of Honor. And I tell you, I told Sergeant Logan I was in combat, but I did not do anything. Anything like what these guys did. And I mean that. And I've talked to other members of the military. And I have not yet met anyone that is in awe of the Medal of Honor like I am. I am. I am and always will be. I just cannot help it. That's why I mentioned the Medal of Honor now on all of these battles. I've mentioned at least one or two Medal of Honor recipients. Podcast secret. Now, this is your first podcast. I want to tell you right now what I'm going to tell you is not to leave this podcast. And the way we do this is we're going to zip those lips and we're going to pinky swear. So you take your right hand 
or your left, I don't care, and you move it to one side of your mouth and you zip those lips. Then you take your right hand and you make a little fist and you stick your little finger up in the air. We're going to pinky swear. And what you're going to swear to is what I'm going to tell you is not going to leave this podcast. You understand? Pinky swear. I told you on the last podcast that I am a flag fanatic. And this is nothing political. This is just, I think, comes from reading about the Civil War and the capturing of the enemy battle flags. They were called trophies. Etching on the swords that you know I'm fascinated with as well are battle trophies or flags. I have absolutely zero Revolutionary War flags except reproductions. I have zero authentic Civil War battle flags. Zero. Podcasters, I just don't have $74,000 if I could even find one for sale. But I do have some others. Now the reason your pinky's wearing this one is because this flag was captured by a soldier in the United States Army 5th Division. How do I know? Where did the 5th Division fight in World War II? They fought against the Germans. This was a Nazi flag captured by a member in the 5th Army Division. How do I know that? It is stenciled onto the white around the swastika. 5th Division. And then the names of the countries that the 5th Division fought in. Podcasters. Just like the Japanese flag captured on Okinawa by a Marine. I had to have it. And I've got it. It is a battle trophy. Fifth Division. Now, my war. The only Viet Cong flag that I saw when I was in country was given to the lieutenant who gave it to the captain that wasn't even on the patrol. I wanted that flag. I wanted it. Many years later, I went to see a friend of mine who owns a gun store in Tyler, Texas, the shootist. And he and I have been friends for 25, 30 years. I don't know. He said, I'm going to show you what I've got. And he brought out a Viet Cong flag. I said, what do you want for it? He said, $300. I said, what? $300. I said, I'm not about to pay you $300 for that flag. He said, then you go down and you find another one cheaper. I said, okay. He said, too late. I already sold. You're number two. You should have been here sooner. Well, after I left, we visited. I looked at the flag a few more times. Then we go back to another friend of mine who owned a gun store and a pawn shop in Kilgore. It was kind of like the Mayberry RFD barbershop. We all hung around in there, and there was a soldier there from Vietnam, and I told him about that flag and that I wanted that flag. And he said to me, he said, 
Do you really want a VC flank? I said, yes, I do. And he said, I'll give you mine. And he drove back to his house, and in 20 minutes, he was back with that flag. Now, you know what part I left out? The $300. And I told him, I said, I'm going to use this for show and tell. I've still got that VC flag. I'm going to ask you a question, podcasters. And I'm going to tell you this. I've asked this question to every person that I have met that can answer they saw Forrest Gump. And this is it. When Forrest first met Lieutenant Diane, Lieutenant was standing next to what we call, I call, a makeshift army latrine. Though in the Marine Corps, we didn't call them latrine. And they're talking. Tell me what was on the door of that latrine. No one I've asked that question to has ever been able to answer it. Podcasters, I'm not making this up. When I sat in the theater and saw that, I saw what was on that door. And they ought to give awards if they do not give awards to whoever put that on there. A Viet Cong flag. So you get on YouTube and you go back and you find Forrest Gump, he and his friend meeting Lieutenant Diane and you look and see that Viet Cong flag. Standing ovation. Let's give that person a standing ovation that put that flag on that door. Okay. When I was in country, as we call it, little kids would come up barefooted, walk right through our concertina wire because we had such lousy concertina wire. All right, I'm going to tell you, podcasting, they would sell us hot beer, hot beer. Never ever got introduced to an ice cube. Tiger beer, brown bottle with yellow tiger on it. 10 cents and they brought in flags these were the flags of South Vietnam the Republic of Vietnam if you look at a Vietnam service medal you will see that the ribbon is yellow with three red stripes that's the the Viet Cong excuse me got my bits mixed up that's the South Vietnamese flag you know how badly I wanted one of those when I was in country not but years later, in Tyler, Texas, I walked into one of these flea markets and a lady was unpacking things to put in her booth and there was a South Vietnamese flag. And I walked over and I said, where did you get this? I don't, I, did I sound, I'm not mean. I went, where did you get this? She said, my son brought it back from Vietnam. He doesn't want it anymore. I said, you selling it? Oh, yes, I am. How much? One dollar. One dollar. How fast do you think I got that dollar out? Those are my flags from that war. Now, remember... Everything that I told you has something to do with something I'm going to tell you later. 
George H. Thomas, the Rock of Chigamagua, given that nickname by future President James Garfield when he sent the message to Rosecrans during the retreating at Chigamagua, Thomas is standing like a rock. And who was standing there with him? Thomas. R. M. Stanley, 18th Ohio. The Federalists lost the Battle of Chickamauga. Now, podcasters, I got to tell you, I, I just keep learning this stuff. Uh, 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 learn. Mm. I'm going to have to do a podcast on Chickamauga. I'm just going to have to, but I'm going to tell you this right now. When the Federals were retreating, Bragg, who was the commander of the Confederate Army, he did not know if they were retreating or not, and this Confederate private said, Sir, they are retreating, the Yankees are retreating, and Bragg yelled at him. How do you know they're retreating? He said, I see them retreating. Have you ever seen a retreat before? Yes, sir. When? He said, I've retreated with you a hundred times. George H. Thomas was born in Virginia. And when he sided with the North because of his loyalty oath to the United States, he was disowned by his family. And when someone told his sister in 1870 that he had died, he, she said, no, sir, you are mistaken. He died in 1861. I mentioned this, I'm quite sure, but I'm going to mention it again. He was never quite trusted just as Southerners who had been born in the North were not quite trusted. And also because he commanded now the Army of the Cumberland and they had lost at Chickamauga. And Grant didn't quite know if you're going to get him out of those trenches again. He was given a letter, George Thomas was, addressed to a Confederate officer to be delivered for to, and so under flag of truce, he sent that letter over to Bragg and asked Bragg to send that letter down to whoever that officer was, and Bragg wrote on it and sent it back and said, I do not do anything for traitors. Well, that did not put George H. Thomas in a good mood at all. Now, we're moving up. In November... Before the Battle of Lookout Mountain, a Confederate prisoner was brought. He was a deserter. He was brought to Grant. And he told Grant that Bragg was retreating. He's getting ready to withdraw, going back into Georgia. Here's something I just learned. I'm going to, I just learned this. I've known about these deserters chit-chat. According to this historian who wrote about the battle at Chancellorsville, he said they felt free to give information. It's almost like, well, we're buddies, you know, we both speak the same language, and I got a little southern accent, and you don't, but, you know. And they just spilled all the information out. So, like, and you want to know something else? I got something else I could tell you. There was no code of conduct, name, rank, and serial number. What are you talking about? I'm just chit-chatting. 
He wasn't sure, but he thought that Bragg was withdrawing back into Georgia. Well, or was he sending more troops over to face Sherman? So to hold him in position, he asked General Thomas to advance his Army of the Cumberland just halfway toward Missionary Ridge. Halfway. Like checkmate. Check him. Keep him there. So Thomas moves 20,000 soldiers halfway to Missionary Ridge. The main assault is going to be Sherman. Now, do you still have the map I told you to draw when we did Lookout Mountain? Because if you do, I want you to find it. Find it real quickly. I'm looking for my, oh, there's mine right there. Now, if you hadn't got one, this is the way you do it. Just get out a piece of paper, and we'll go north to south. North is going to be the top. I want you to draw a rectangle and bring it down about three-fourths of the way down that page. And then, at the bottom of that rectangle, just make a circle. That would be Lookout Mountain. Okay? Now, go back up to the top. Now, keep up. And with blue ink, I want you to draw an arrow going against the front part of that rectangle, up at the top. That's Sherman. That's where Sherman's going to attack. And then come down about center and draw another one, and that's going to be George H. Thomas and the Army of the Cumberland. Now, if you want to draw Confederates, take red. Take a red pen. Confederates normally are drawn in red. Yankees are drawn in blue. I guess gray wouldn't show up. And I want you to draw that line down, down, Missionary Ridge. And at the bottom of Missionary Ridge, I want you to write down a name. John C. Breckenridge. Podcasters, when you really read a lot about this stuff, these people, like I told you more than one time about the Mexican War and all those lieutenants and captains are going to be generals in the Civil War. Let's play Historical Jeopardy Civil War. Ring in. John C. Breckenridge, ring in. Who was Vice President of the United States with Buchanan? He's from Kentucky. He raised a brigade and came to the Confederacy. He gets a commission as a general, and he was a good soldier. And that Kentucky brigade, because Kentucky did not pass the ordinance of secession, is nicknamed the Orphan Brigade. Let's stay with historical Civil War jeopardy real quickly. Who was the only president of the United States that became a member of the Confederate Congress? Ring in and say, who was John Tyler? He died before the Congress met, but he was a member of the Confederate Congress. Now, Sherman is attacking at the right, Confederate right of Bragg at Missionary Ridge, and he is having trouble. He's having trouble because of, and this is according to his biographer, the terrain. The terrain is not flat. There are tunnels. It's not flat. Another biographer said Sherman wasn't up to par that day. Well, neither was Lee on the third day of Gettysburg. Let's do football analogy. What if a football team lost the Super Bowl because the coach wasn't feeling well? I'm going to tell you something they left out, people. 
I'm going to tell you something right now that they left out when they say those two things. You know the main reason Sherman's men weren't doing well? It's because when George H. Thomas moved halfway up to Missionary Ridge, Bragg was not evacuating Missionary Ridge. He was sending a division to help Longstreet against Burnside at Knoxville. Best of the best. Army of Tennessee, more than one historian said, is no finer army was ever led by worse leaders. Like Bragg. He was sending to help Longstreet, the best division in his army. And that was the division of Patrick Claiborne. Claiborne had a nickname. Let's stay with Civil War Jeopardy. Who was known as the Stonewall of the West? Patrick R. Claiborne. Final Jeopardy. Who gave him that nickname? President Jeff Davis. That was the best division in the Army of Tennessee. And in that division was the best brigade. And the best brigade was the brigade of Claiborne. Claiborne's brigade. And in Claiborne's brigade, there is a regiment, the 15th Texas, with Lieutenant Robert M. Collins. What Bragg did when Thomas moved halfway up was he brought Patrick Claiborne's division back and put them to oppose Sherman. And that's what's giving Sherman a lot of trouble. As Sherman's men were attacking, a Confederate captain by the name of Collins, he said, now I'm going to change one word because, if, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give him a quote and I want to say fall, okay? English language, fall, fall. Don't fall. If you fall, you're going to hurt yourself. Don't fall. What's your favorite time of the year? Fall. Fall, fall. Understand? The Union soldiers were advancing up Missionary Ridge, which, by the way, was almost vertical. Missionary Ridge was 600 feet high. Almost vertical. One of the biographers said that on a peaceful sunny afternoon it would be difficult to get up that ridge. And the width of Missionary Ridge was 6 feet to 650 feet wide. There's artillery up there. Thousands of Confederates. And there was Claiborne's division. Granbury's Brigade. And in Granbury's Brigade, which Granbury, Texas is named for, was the 15th Texas. And that captain said, now, this is what he said. The men of Ohio are advancing. And that captain said, see how they fall. They fall like leaves in the fall of the year. See how they fall. They fall like leaves from the trees in the fall of the year. Now listen to this, podcasters. Now this is something that they all leave out. Or 99% of them that leave this out. 
listen to what he said now. And still they come. And still they come. Podcasters, these men were brave. But there comes a time where you just can't keep going. And so the Federalists retreated. And then, as they said, these are quotes, as Texans do, they jumped over the works without orders, and given the rebel yell, they charged into the Federals. And while they were charging into the Federals, there was a lieutenant in the 9th Mississippi, and he found something. Lieutenant Dickens, 9th Mississippi, found a sword that belonged to Lieutenant Colonel Charles Foster, who was the Foster brother of George Sherman. Now, you know how I am about swords. That just fascinates me. First off, how did they know that was his sword? I'm assuming it was inscribed. And, of course, only me would think, what kind of sword was it? 1850 Staff and Field? They fall like leaves from trees in the fall of the year. And still they come. Sherman's having big trouble, podcasters. And Grant sees that. And so, he orders Thomas to send his division and take the rifle pits, the trenches at the base of Missionary Ridge. And they do that. 20,000 men as if on parade in double line that stretch for several miles more men than in Pickett's charge, they start coming across that field. Now, we know about the rebel yell. You do know about the rebel yell. This YouTube is something. There is nothing that YouTube doesn't seem to have. I think I may do this. You go to YouTube and you say, I want a penny-flipping contest, and they'll come up with 72 of them. Do this if you haven't already done it. Do what? Already done what? YouTube, Rebel Yell. Many of those soldiers live for a long, 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 long time. And Gettysburg becomes, because of the Lost Cause writers, the place. And at the 50th reunion, you can see this on YouTube. And one of the Confederates would give a rebel yell. I'm going to tell you something you don't know about. How do I know you don't know about this? I have surveyed for 43 years of teaching. Everybody seems to know about the rebel yell. In my book, Hector's Texas Brigade. Now, my bragging, I'm going to tell you what Valerie said. Valerie's a young lady that I really respect, and I asked Valerie something. I said, Valerie, if I show you something that's complimentary of me, is that bragging? It's just something that's complimentary. It's written down. Is that bragging? And, and Valerie thought about it for a few minutes. A few seconds, I'm sorry. Seconds seem like minutes. Uh, podcast, I want you to remember this. This is for life. You got that piece of paper with a map on it? Let's do it like this. I want you to draw a line. 
And on the left side of that line, I want you to do a one and a two. One and two. You can start one and two. And then come across that line and do three. That's all you got to do is three on the right side of that line. And this is what Valerie said. If you're going to tell me something that someone said about you that's complimentary, now this is it. You see that one and two? She said one or two, that's just fine. Look where that three is. What have you done? Three? You crossed the line. You're in the bragging line. You're in the bragging line. And so, I don't know if it's bragging or not, but in writing Extra's Brigade, I learned that Extra's Brigade learned how to give the rebel yell when they stopped in the Cherokee nations and they attended a war dance and the Cherokee taught them how to give an Indian war cry. Now here is the final Jeopardy of all final Jeopardy questions, okay? We got the Yankee rebel yell. Excuse me. We got the rebel yell. What do the Yankees do? This is what the Yankees did. It was a roar. It started low and it rose in intensity. A roar. Thousands. Roar. That doesn't get the press. And so here come 24,000 men with bayonets coming across that field. And I will guarantee you there is a roar. And the Confederates there abandon the rifle pits. And they get in the rifle pits, the trenches. Okay, I'm going to tell you something right now, podcasters. Here we go again. I do meet a few people every now and then that know about Arthur MacArthur. I met one just the other day, and I said, my next podcast, I'm going to talk about Arthur MacArthur. And this gentleman said he disobeyed orders, and he walked off. I mean, he was leaving anyway. I I want you to ask people. I want you to ask family, friends, and yes, strangers, if they won't get mad at you. Tell me about Arthur MacArthur. See what they say. And one out of every thousand might say, yeah, he disobeyed orders. I'm going to tell you what happened, podcasters, and I'm going to let you phase it any way you want. You will not hurt my feelings. When they got in those rifle pits and those Confederates retreated, cannons are firing at them and blasting them to pieces. Thousands of infantry are firing at them. They're cutting them to pieces. And it came a time where they could either retreat or they could charge, but they could not stay where they were. I'm going to say that they either retreated or they charged. They could not stay in those rifle pits. And this is why Gideon Wells, sitting in that office on that cold, dreary night, said there needs to be a way to honor the men who go forward. And you know what they did? They charged. I'm going to say this again. They did not have orders to charge. They were to stay in those rifle pits. And they disobeyed orders. Disobeyed orders. 24,000 disobeyed orders. Now, Arthur MacArthur was not the first of the 24th Wisconsin now, but he was the second. He was right on the heels of the captain. And they start charging up that hill. 
up that ridge, and they're being cut to pieces. Now, I will tell you, all right, Valerie, Valerie, this is only the second one, okay? I've read this account in three different books. And to give you an idea of the intensity of the firing, a color bearer, I tell my students, if you get back in time and you don't want to die quickly in a battle, do not carry the flag. You read these accounts, these flag bearers are going down. They're falling like leaves from the trees in the fall. And when I read this, I, I believe they're just talking about the intensity of the firing. One color bearer had his head taken off from a cannonball. Another one picks up the battle flag and he shot. And then another one, a sergeant by the name of John Booth, no relation to John Booth that shot Lincoln. Just from pure exhaustion. Now, I'll tell you this. These men were not couch potatoes. You are not a couch potato if you're in the infantry. I guarantee you that. Did I ever tell you? I bet you I did. I'm going to tell you again. Because I think I played football in high school, and I always put how much weight you had. When I enlisted in the Marine Corps, I was 190 pounds. When I got out of boot camp, I was 175. I got out of Vietnam, I was 128 pounds. Infantry are not overweight. They walk. When that color bearer went down from pure exhaustion, that would tell you the intensity, the emotions, the adrenaline, the fatigue, and how hard it was to get up that ridge. And Arthur MacArthur picked up that battle flag. Now, I'm going to give you this. Now, I debate this. Should I? I'm going to do this. No, I, I'm going to tell you. I have read three things, remember? And Valerie, you told me that is not bragging. That's just number two. All right? And I'm going to tell you what each of the three said, and then I'm going to ask you which one he said. He could only say one, I guess. I wasn't there. You ready? He said, this is the first thing I read, own Wisconsin. Second, own, comma, Wisconsin. Third, 24th Wisconsin. Own Wisconsin. Own Wisconsin. 24th Wisconsin. Which one did he say? My eighth grade scholars would often ask, how do you know you weren't there? And this is what I would tell them. I'm going to tell you which one I believe he yelled. 24th, Wisconsin. Why would I choose that one? That one came from his biography. The other two, own Wisconsin, own comma Wisconsin, came from books about Grant, about Sherman, about the Battle of Missionary Ridge. 24th, Wisconsin, from his biographer. That's the one I'm going with. That's my final answer. 24th, Wisconsin. And they go up that ridge, and the Confederates start retreating. R.M. Collins said, 15th Texas, he said, what's happening? What's happening? Everybody's retreating. I thought we had a great victory. What has happened? 
what has happened is Arthur MacArthur, 24th Wisconsin, Thomas's Army of the Cumberland. That's what happened. Arthur MacArthur planted that flag in the headquarters of General Bragg because he is gone and that army of Tennessee is retreating into Georgia. And R.M. Collins told his captain, he said, Sir, this is the death knell of the Confederacy. For if we cannot hold them fellows here, we cannot hold them anywhere. And the captain said, You shut up. That's treason. Longstreet said the death knell of the Confederacy came at Chickamauga because they had not destroyed Rosecrans' army. Arthur MacArthur planted that flag. Now, he's going to stay in the army. He's going to become a general. He's going to finally retire. He goes home to Milwaukee. Two things I read that were important to him, the Medal of Honor, which he got many years later, and he got the Medal of Honor, you know how these citations are, that in intense firing he led his men in the Battle of Missionary Ridge. You can Google it, you can see exactly what it said, but it's basically with a flag he led his men in the Battle of Missionary Ridge. I believe he got it about 1893. And the other thing he wanted, he wanted to die at the head of his regiment. He wanted to die at the head of his regiment. Now, podcasters, when I was in the Marine Corps, I went all the way up to sergeant, and I did that simply because I was a drill instructor. That's all. I went on the field as a corporal, put one platoon through, you become a sergeant. But I attended battalion reunions. When I was in the 1st Marine Division, Marine Corps Lingo, 1st Mardiv at Pendleton, we were a transplacement battalion in those days when you were going to Okinawa, did not even think about Vietnam. platoon radio operator. Now don't be like my students think I just sit around and pull the dial of a radio listening to Saigon and rock and roll music. There's a PRC-10 on my back. I was a rifleman. And my first lieutenant, Lieutenant Baines, was transferred to Charlie Company. I didn't see him in Vietnam. And many years later at Battalion Reunion, he was a keynote speaker and he was a general. And he said something. This is what he said. I don't know if it's true of every officer or not. Their first love that they always remember was that first command when they were young lieutenants. Perhaps that's what Arthur MacArthur meant. He wanted to die at the head of his regiment. Remember I told you something in the first podcast that had something to do with something I'm going to tell you later? After the Battle of Murfreesboro, also known as Stones River, he got typhoid. 
His father came and got him and took him back to Milwaukee. And when he read in the papers how desperate the 24th Wisconsin and that army was, he left that sick bed and he went 600 miles back. And I told you, I told you, I think I told you, remember that. Because there's only 50 men left in his regiment from 1,000. And they're having a reunion in Milwaukee. And he's sick. He's too sick to go. But when he finds out the keynote speaker can't show up, he cuts out of that sick bed and he goes to his old regiment. And he's standing there talking. September 5th, 1912. He tells him about when they were young, when they were in the war, at Missionary Ridge, marching through Georgia. I think I told you, I know I told you, that that historian that wrote a biography of Lincoln said that he had a lot of facts in there, and the interviewer said, well, how do we know what happened and what didn't? And he said this, don't you ever forget this. If it makes perfect sense and could not have happened, it did happen. I'm going to say that again. I missed. If it makes perfect sense, I made it up. If it's unbelievable, it happened. At the head of his regiment, given the talk, he fell over dead. He fell over dead. Brain aneurysm. I leave that to the beekeeper, Dr. Gary Smith. He died at the head of his regiment. And they covered his body with the same flag he carried up Missionary Ridge. Arthur MacArthur has become one of my heroes. Now, if you looked at my Facebook, I showed you that beautiful sword. And I said the importance of that sword would be revealed in the next podcast. That sword, that beautiful sword, was presented to Brigadier General Bolton, 1898 by the citizens of Chattanooga. Henry Boynton. In 1898, we have the date, 1898. What's going on in 1898? Spanish-American War. General Henry Vaness Boynton had just been commissioned Brigadier General for the Spanish-American War. That podcast is, all right, Valerie, I'm crossing the line. Okay, Valerie, I'm crossing the line. It's always a bragging time. I've mentioned my books, five of them. Oh, here we go, Valerie, I'm in the bragging line. And like my children, I'm proud of each and every one of them in their distinct way. And that one I did, Civil War Sword and Revolver presentations as reported in the Boston Daily Evening Transcript, 1861 I sold for $10 and $15. Only printed 300 of them. 
I saw one on Amazon. It was the only one left for sale, and I believe it was 300 and something dollars. I looked yesterday, podcast, it's gone. Why do I say that? I had a friend tell him about that, and he said, nobody, it's gone. These swords fascinate me. And in that book, in the introduction, I found, and I'm not going to go back and look at it, but I found, I counted how many revolvers were presented, how many swords. And guess what? About four swords for every revolver. And I put in, why the sword? Why the sword? Officers had to purchase everything. And this was very expensive. But what better gift to give an officer in the military than a sword? Police officers don't carry swords. Civilians don't carry swords. They do carry revolvers, but they do not carry swords. A sword is symbolic of the military and of command. That's why presentation swords are so numerous, relatively speaking. What better gift to give a newly commissioned brigadier general than a sword? Chattanooga, Tennessee. General Henry Von Ness Boynton was awarded the Medal of Honor. For what? Leading his men in the charge at Missionary Ridge. Tennessee podcasters, all 11 Confederate states that passed ordinances of secession to become Confederate states had regiments in the Northern Army, including Texas. Yes, Texans. The commander of the 1st Texas Cavalry became the most hated governor during Reconstruction of Texas. But of all Confederate states, None had nearly as many men loyal to the North and raising regiments to fight for the North than Tennessee. Knoxville was very pro-Union. When Burnside came through this town of Knoxville, he was treated like the hero he was. So here we have Tennessee, the most loyal of the Confederate states, presenting a sword to a newly commissioned general in the Spanish-American War. And here's something else. There's so much here, podcasters. In 1898, there were men in the North going to wear Yankee uniforms, and they're going to have to go through Georgia. They're going to have to go through Dixie to get to Florida. And they literally were wondering, are we going to be attacked? You know who greeted them when they came to Georgia? Beautiful young ladies. There were political cartoons, and I call them cartoons simply because they were drawn, of a man in a Confederate uniform and a man in a Union uniform, and in between them was a U.S. flag, and they're shaking hands. This is called reconciliation. Let's make up. We're all Americans. Let's make up. Reconciliation. Here is a man who got the Medal of Honor by attacking Confederate soldiers and the citizens of Chattanooga are giving him a beautiful sword. What more? One more. Do you do the homework when I sign homework? I know Dale does. 
you go back to the Vicksburg podcast and you listen to the homework and you get down there to that gentleman that's a park ranger telling about how these national parks got started on these battlefields. This newly commissioned Brigadier General who got the Medal of Honor for attacking Confederate soldiers at Missionary Ridge is the chairman of the committee to establish the National Military Park of Chattanooga and Chickamauga. Chattanooga and Chickamauga. All of that. All of that in that one sword. Podcasters. These swords and these flags and these medals of honor are just fascinating to me. Now, homework. I'm going to just give you one little assignment. And Megan, the next time chapters and chatter get together, Sarah, get out your computer. And I want you to do this. If you don't listen to audio books, I'm going to just give you a, a sample of the joy I get in listening to these. And this is what I want you to do. We're going to go to, go to Amazon.com Books. American Ulysses. American Ulysses. The Biography of Grant. By Ronald C. White. You got it? I want you to go there. And when you bring that up, you look over there and you're going to see a little dot. And then you have, listen. And you punch on listen. And podcasters, you're going to hear about three minutes of what I find so much joy in. And this has to do, I'm going to, just, I'm going to tell you this. Lincoln has been looking for a general. I'm reading a great biography, listening to a great biography. Put a surprise, 1940. And he knew about Grant from Vicksburg. I thought you were wrong and I was right, but now I learned that you were right and I was wrong. And my students used to ask, where's Grant, where's Grant? The one thing that was holding Lincoln back was that reputation of drinking. But now, after Chattanooga, Grant's being called back to Washington. And what I want you to listen to is the beginning of that book. Excuse me, I misspoke. The part of that book where Grant has been called back to Washington. Oh, I got to tell you one more thing. Now, this happened when I was teaching face-to-face -face in the classroom. Those students would leave, and I re oh, my gosh, I forgot to tell them this. I'm going to tell you right now. It's my podcast. It's my class. On his way back to Washington, Grant stopped at Nashville and the governor of his hometown, Galena, Illinois, presented him a sword. 
On one side of the scabbard was engraved the victories he was in in the Mexican War, and the other side were the victories he had commanded in the Civil War. And this is in the biography. And they talked about how Grant had to say something, and he reached in his pocket, and he pulled out some cartridge paper, and he had a few words written on it. That's the reason for putting it in the biography. But you know what I did? How do you know what I did? You don't know what I did, but I'm going to tell you what I did. I went to the end notes. How do you know that happened? I wasn't questioning that. I want to see, where did the author get that information? Listen to this, podcasters. Got it from Grant's wife, Judy. I'm going to fast forward so far that when Grant was dying and had to sell his swords to try to get money to pay bills, the one sword she would not let him sell wasn't this one. It's one in 1864 to raise money for the Sanitary Commission, which was like the Red Cross to help the Union soldiers. Then for $1 each, you got to vote on which officer should have that sword. The most popular officer, Grant, would win that. That's the sword that she kept. I'm going to tell you, ladies, you ladies are something else. You hear that, Laura? Hear that, Lauren? Jennifer? Megan? Carly? Candace? Jennifer? And all you young ladies that I didn't mention. These swords were important. Alright? Now, as they say, I will see you at the next podcast. Do your homework. And... Have a good day.